1: Welcome investors to episode 24 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klimachko And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is a lovely Friday, July 26th, 2019. It's hot out there, we're stuck inside reporting on a lot of important events that occurred in the market. Everything from regulatory to global macro, to fundamental company performance. I mean, we're right in the midst of Q2 reporting season. A lot of companies reported uh, Q2 results this week, which we'll get into. We'll start off with uh, T-Mobile and Sprint. So they won antitrust approval for their merger. What did the parties do to obtain the nod from the Department of Justice? CanTrust, the beleaguered cannabis firm, they actually fired their CEO and their chairman resigned as this scandal really deepens. We're gonna talk about what happens now. Some economic growth figures, the US economy grew at 2.1% in the second quarter, beating expectations. Is the Fed still gonna cut rates next week? The ECB, the European Central Bank, signals upcoming rate cuts and a potential relaunch of monetary stimulus. Why is more stimulus necessary in the Eurozone economy? Finally, a regulator opens review into the big tech firm's market power. Why is the regulator concerned about these big tech firms? A big win for T-Mobile and Sprint shareholders along with merger arbitrageurs as the Department of Justice announced that it's going to approve their $26 billion merger. So T-Mobile, the nation's uh, number three carrier by subscribers, and number four Sprint have spent weeks negotiating with antitrust enforcers, the Department of Justice, and each other over the transfer to Dish Networks, who is a third player here, uh, for the building blocks of a network effectively a new fourth competitor of which DISH will be, to satisfy regulatory concerns that their more than $26 billion merger would hurt consumers by reducing price competition in the mobile, uh, mobile offering market. This approval came after the parties agreed to divest assets to DISH Network in an effort to create a strong new fourth competitor. Because what is happening in this merger, T-Mobile number three is acquiring Sprint number four. And without this new player, DISH, which just offers uh, satellite uh, TV services, they're looking to get into the mobile space. So without DISH, the regulator didn't want to see only three options for U.S. consumers. The strategic rationale behind the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint, which they've really been working on since pretty much 2013, so nearly six years for them to finally get approval. This deal would deliver a 5G network with lower prices, better quality, and thousands of jobs while unlocking Forty-three billion in synergies. Now, I believe that's not uh, not at all an annual number. The forty-three billion would be the present value of the uh, annualized cost savings in the deal. Now, this union of T-Mobile and Sprint, which was years in the making, as I said, almost six years. This would create a wireless company surpassing ninety million U.S. customers, and this is really closing the gap versus Verizon and AT&T, which are both uh, roughly a hundred million wireless subscribers so it doesn't really push them ahead of what T-Mobile CEO John Ledger claims uh, dumb and dumber, referring to AT&T and Verizon. So they're still going to be number three, but a much stronger number three player in competing against Verizon and AT&T. Now the Justice Department and five state attorney generals, they stated they're filing a suit to enforce the settlement conditions that also include selling the Virgin Mobile and Sprint prepaid brands and providing with access to 20,000 cell sites and hundreds of retail locations. So that what the DOJ is agreed that T-Mobile and Sprint need to do is really support DISH, divest these assets to DISH, such that DISH is a strong fourth competitor off the bat. They're divesting their prepaid brands to DISH and then giving DISH uh, much operating support as it enters uh, the mobile space. In addition to that, DISH has agreed to acquire Spectrum in a deal valued at $3.6 billion And uh, for this prepaid business, they're actually paying $1.4 billion. That gives them 9.3 million subscribers right off the bat. The FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, is another federal regulator in the US. They previously backed the deal a few months ago. They said Friday that the Justice Department settlement, coupled with T-Mobile and Sprint's earlier commitments to deploy a nationwide 5G network, which is why the FCC initially approved the deal, said it will preserve competition and advance US leadership in rolling out next generation net which was really important to the regulators here and even, you know, the President Donald Trump wants to see the U.S. become a leader in 5G. And many of the players involved here indicated that this merger was really uh, key to advance 5G in the U.S. Interesting to note that the FCC and the DOJ really haven't disagreed on a deal in decades, I think since the 1970s. So this deal kind of falling in line where they both agreed to approve it. This deal still faces one small challenge. A group of U.S. state attorney generals, they filed a lawsuit in federal court in New York to block the merger on antitrust grounds. They argue that it'll cost customers $4.5 billion annually, but I just, you know, I don't really see this as blocking the deal. It could add to some delays, but ultimately they typically fall in line with the federal regulators. Nonetheless, market participants, uh, shareholders of the two companies really liking it, Sprint up 76 percent on the news today, T-Mobile up 5.2 percent, so really positive news in the mobile space for Sprint and T-Mobile with the DOJ approving their merger. What are your thoughts on this regulatory action?
2: When I saw the news this morning, I also saw a tweet that pointed out that when Leger took over T-Mobile, they were the number four player that had poor infrastructure and retail locations that couldn't even sell the iPhone. And now they've surpassed the number three player and also convinced regulators to allow a three, four merger. So if you would have asked investors back when he took control of T-Mobile, if he was going to be able to do something as drastic as this, I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy performance. And then he's also compounded returns for, for investors in that, in that timeframe as well. One other aspect, and I mean obviously the DOJ, they, as you had mentioned, they were really concerned with the rollout of five G networks. So that was a big aspect: is that they believe that they can roll this out faster because of the merger. But as well with the with the divestiture of the Boost Mobile and the prepaid business, I believe that uh, Dish Network has been acquiring some spectrum in the auctions over the last couple of years. In addition to these subscribers that they already have, you know, do you want to comment a little bit on the strength of this fourth player that that is now being created created?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to talk about Dish because it's its uh, founder and CEO Charlie Ergen. He's a quite an interesting character. I know he, back in his younger days, he was a professional card player and he's well known in uh, deal negotiations for being quite difficult and bluffing. So, a real savvy negotiator and uh, some interesting history. Dish actually bid on Sprint a while back, way back when uh, SoftBank acquired a controlling stake in Sprint. Uh, so, SoftBank had had a friendly deal to acquire its controlling stake in Sprint. I believe this would have been maybe 2011, in that range, so call it seven, eight years ago, and and, uh, Dish came over the top, lobbed in a much higher offer, forcing SoftBank to pay a materially higher price for their Sprint interest. So some interesting dynamics between those firms, and for a long time, as you indicated, Dish has been acquiring a lot of spectrum fueling market speculation that they're going to get into the mobile business at some point because their satellite TV business is really in long-term decline, everything's going to streaming and so they're looking for areas of growth. So they focused on the mobile sector and they had long been a rumored bidder of T-Mobile, but as T-Mobile's fortunes have really changed, as you indicated, since John Ledger came on as CEO, in 2013. He's really just absolutely crushed it. I think his performance as a CEO has been legendary, Hall of Fame, worthy. He's certainly one of the best CEOs in American business. And most interesting. Oh yeah, quite the character. I encourage everyone to follow him on Twitter. Very entertaining guy. Uh, especially on their conference calls and just berating his competitors making fun of their results and you know he he also walks the walk as he talks about them because their results have been nothing but outstanding Uh, as you indicated tremendous results the stock has compounded at thirty percent annualized since he became CEO in 2013, which is pretty tremendous performance, and operationally, T-Mobile has just been, you know, absolutely kicking ass. There, I believe their stock hitting a new all-time high today, uh, not just on the uh, positive deal announcement, but also uh, continually exceptional uh, quarterly results, which they just reported yesterday, and so all things going very well uh, at T-Mobile and they're looking to consolidate Sprint there and Dish becoming a fourth player in the business. Another thing I wanted to touch on is, as a merger arbitrager, you look how this deal what it was structured like when, when it got announced. And said I indicated, there have been rumors over the past six years of these two parties combining. They actually had two false starts where the government indicated, no, we're gonna block this deal, don't even bother, don't even bother officially announcing it because it's not gonna get approved. You look over that history, now you look at how you know they officially announced the deal last year. As a merger arbitrager, you you're trying to gauge the risk of the deal or the chance of success of the deal actually closing the deal, the risk of the deal falling apart, and uh, you look back at it and really no one could have ever thought uh, this is how it would go in terms of Dish coming in, them creating a new fourth player with all the these asset divestments to Dish. Uh, so it's really interesting from that perspective. And basically, what a arbitrager would do is you know look at the risk reward uh, basically on the first day where there's all that liquidity and establish a position on that and basically play those odds that something's going to happen in your favor which certainly was the case here as the parties came to this really uh, interesting creative uh, divestment agreement to uh, bring dish in as a strong fourth player into the market and ultimately get approval and look forward to closing this deal in the next few months, so I thought that was a really interesting dynamic there and we will uh, further see how these companies do in the future. Scandal really deepening at cannabis firm CanTrust. So what happened was embattled cannabis firm, CanTrust, they fired their two most senior officials, including the CEO, Peter Aceto. They fired him with cause after media reports indicated that these top two executives, amongst others, knew of the company's illegal production of unlicensed cannabis. The company's chairman and co-founder, Eric Paul, also stepped down after facing demands from the company to resign. Now they have a special committee investigating this whole um, this whole scandal. What they're investigating is the breaches at the firm and these high profile departures that stem from the special committee receiving new information. So apparently members of this special committee did not know uh, previously to the media reporting. This management overhaul comes in the wake of evidence showing that both Aceto, the CEO, and Paul, the chairman, were made aware of the illegal activity at one of CanTrust's facilities last year. So to recap on what happened there was federal regulators began investigating CanTrust back in June after a tip from a former employee who turned whistleblower. He alleged that he helped stage photographs in CanTrust greenhouse in Ontario to hide the fact that plants were growing in unlicensed room. Now since then new information has come out uh, confirming Uh, this whistleblower allegation in addition to uh, numerous other uh, infractions that CanTrust really tried hiding from the regulator uh, over the past uh, nine months or so, while Aceto was CEO. Now, media, a post a BNN Bloomberg, they obtained documents this week showing that Aceto told staff to, quote, continue as planned with unlicensing planting back in November, which is obviously a big no-no if the tone of the top is that uh, that poor in judgment. Also, uh, the Globe and Mail reported on an email from around the same time that was allegedly forward to Chairman Paul and that acknowledged Health Canada had missed cultivation in that unlicensed Room. So the email stated that Trust quote, dodged a bullet when Health Canada missed seeing that hidden room, but, uh, you know, that bu- bullet seems to have ricocheted and caught them. Internal emails showed that the pair and other CanTrust officials, so the CEO, chairman, all the way down, they're made aware of the breaches of Health Canada regulations at their growing facility back in November, seven months before the regular uncovered the illegal practice. So what's happened since? Well, the price of CanTrust shares, they're down 60%, since this news story broke back on July 8th. And uh, you know, this is really a company that is on fire and that's not in a good way. We have seen precedents in the Canadian market where the marketplace just really loses faith in a publicly traded company. Short sellers pile on and we have to disclose that we are in fact short the stock. We have been short the stock for a while So some disclosure there, but as I stated, a company on fire, let's look at some precedents. Well, one was Home Capital Group, that was another one that skirted regulations and uh, their stock price really tanked as institutional investors bailed out of the firm stock and they really questioned the future viability of the company. You also saw it with Valiant Pharmaceuticals, a well-known massive blow-up. I believe their market cap was 100 billion, billion, north of 100 billion and they were in fact the number one um, company on the TSX right before that whole story blew up and a, a smaller pharmaceutical blow up was uh, Concordia. So these have happened in the past and what we've seen is that after these um, you know massive blow ups where market place participants shareholders really lose faith in the story you know more and more bad news comes out and it seems like they never really recover none of them you know went to zero or bankrupt but their stock really tanked and uh, really just stayed there they never seemed to recoup their old highs actually correction concordia did go go bankrupt so that was one that uh, went kaput but uh, Valiant and Home Capital executing turnaround efforts. But I mean, that's probably the best that you can expect for CanTrust here. You know, they're not selling any product at the moment. They put all sales on hold. At best, they'll likely be forced to destroy a large swath of their inventory in the tens of millions of dollars, at worst, Some analysts are speculating that uh, they could face regulatory, significant regulatory action on both sides of the border in both Canada and the U.S., ultimately face potentially uh, losing their license, which uh, would be a death blow to the company. Uh, what are your thoughts on this increasingly hairy situation? Oh, I just wanted to note uh, the Buffett quote, you know, there's, there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. You see one and then you're sure to meet their relatives uh, in the days coming, which is seems to be what is happening on Contrast. I mean, the, the bad news just keeps getting worse and worse on this file. Absolutely,
2: and regarding Buffett, I mean, with Home Capital Group, he was the one who came in and effectively saved the company with his loan and basically loaning out his reputation to the company. Can trust, I don't believe, will be as lucky. I don't think there's going to be any white knight that comes in and kind of save the, saves the day. But you had mentioned that the stock is down about 60%, which is interesting because there still might be um, some downside here as I believe it was an analyst from Eight Capital had quoted that about 70% of their inventory balance is on hold currently. So there still could be some downside here. Never really know in situations like these. But the as well, the ironic thing is that it's it was alleged, I believe in the financial post, that the CEO um, was even shown in a promotional video outside one of the illegal growing rooms in early 2019, <laughs> yeah. which just brings this story to almost comedic levels, right?
1: Yeah, just a total facepalm. And I did watch the video and it was confirmed that he did record a publicly promoted video in which he is standing being interviewed in front of an unlicensed illegal grow room yeah,
2: which is very very ironic and and yeah the other aspect is that they did also they raised 200 million dollars in, in 200 million US dollars in May and so it's likely that there will be some shareholder lawsuits as insiders did sell about 30 million. Dollars worth of shares into that offering, so the underwriters of that offering, which includes some of the major Canadian banks, will undoubtedly not be <clears throat> happy about that and may may look at legal action.
1: More than likely, this is undoubtedly securities fraud, in my opinion. As you indicated, uh, CanTrust doing an equity offering, a secondary equity offering of nearly 200 million U.S. dollars just in May, and this was underwritten by Bank of America, Citigroup, Jefferies, Credit Suisse. So clearly, a lot of institutional buyers there at a price uh, probably over double the current share price and the worst part of this as you mentioned the chairman he was selling stock in this equity offering while he knew about these illegal growing activities so that is just uh, you know many people I believe would call that fraud And so we'll see how that situation plays out, but likely to be a messy legal situation, uh, both personally and for the company. Another thing I wanted to touch on is you know you have this special committee investigating and potentially looking at all sorts of actions that the company would take. You mentioned in Home Cap, they found uh, you know a White Knight willing to back the company. But in this one on CanTrust, I have heard rumors of you know them potentially putting up the company for sale, seeking a White Knight buyer. But I'm really skeptical that any company would step in here for two reasons. I mean, number one, just the unknown potential liability here. It's just far too risky for any acquirers' board of directors to justify that type of risky deal when you really don't know what sort of liabilities are attached to this, uh, this whole scandal involving the uh, illegal growing, not just that, but you know the securities issues behind the financing that they did while in knowledge of these illegal activities. And number two, then you look at the entire what's going on in the cannabis industry. A lot of companies have done acquisitions of which they're now paying the price they're uh, announcing large write-offs from these past acquisitions Uh, everything from write-offs their stocks are down significantly because the acquisitions haven't paid off as expected and then some CEOs are even losing their jobs the most highest profile being Bruce Linton of canopy growth who actually got fired um, and he's really the face of the industry but got fired for doing too many deals and really not focusing on operational efficiency which is where investors Investors are really laser-focused at this time, so they're really encouraging their uh, their companies not. To consolidate, not to do acquisitions at this stage of the game, and so I think that's a, a number of trends working against Cantrust as they uh, are rumored to potentially be seeking a buyer. Absolutely, and even if they do lose their
2: license, that would you know logically that might take them to the process of bankruptcy. So if you were interested in those assets, you'd probably just want the the normal bankruptcy process to. Uh, to work itself out and then look at the assets.
1: Right. And so where everyone's at here, um, I think generally investors, you know, potential acquirers, even if they're looking at this, everyone's ultimately going to wait to see the results of this Health Canada investigation, which should be, you know, robust and lengthy. We probably won't hear anything about it for a while, but at this point, I mean, no good news at a CAN trust, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Now they have their CEO is out. Uh, stuck with an uh, interim CEO, so they'll be looking for new leadership there, but this one is kind of rudderless at this point. Going to talk some economic growth figures with the U.S. economy growing at 2.1% annualized in the second quarter. Now, this beat Economist, uh consensus expectations of 1.8% growth in the quarter, so a strong number coming out of the U.S. for Q2. These strong economic growth numbers, they come amidst uh, the expectation that the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates next week. Which is pretty surprising because typically as we discussed this in the past the Fed you know typically cuts rates uh, in dire situations to prevent recessions uh, when unemployment is rising but you know right now we have record unemployment near 3.6 percent economic growth figures coming in above consensus estimates now the longest Stretch of economic growth in US history. So it's a really interesting dynamic, but it still looks like the Federal Reserve is going to come through with interest rate cuts next week, irrespective of these, you know, above consensus GDP growth numbers, now it's largely whether they're going to cut by 25 basis points, 0.25%, or 50 basis points. Now the market is pricing in effectively a 100% chance of a cut next week. Uh, They're pointing to 83% chance of the 25 basis point cut and a 17% chance of this 50 basis point cut. So The effect that the strong economic growth number did have was reducing uh, the market odds of that more aggressive 50 basis point cut coming through next week. Now looking at all the components of uh, the GDP figure, it reflected uh, increases in consumer spending and government spending, while inventory investment exports, business investment, and housing investment decrease. Some quotes here, so one from uh, Bloomberg Economist stated that, quote, the composition of growth toward consumer spending and away from investment will be sufficient to propel GDP modestly above trend. Interesting tweet out of President Donald Trump, not quite the economist, but uh, I guess he figures one on Twitter. He stated, quote, Q2 GDP up 2.1%, not bad considering we have that very heavy weight of the Federal Reserve anchor wrapped around our neck. Almost no inflation, USA is set to zoom, exclamation mark. Not too surprising to see President Trump criticizing the Federal Reserve as he tends to often do. Quote here from Capital Economics' chief U.S. economist, he stated, This slowdown just about justifies a 25 basis point cut by the Fed next week, but the chances of a bigger 50 basis point reduction just receded further. Another quote from the chief economist at the conference board, he stated, If the U.S. economy maintains its growth rate above 2%, it can moderate the appetite for further cuts later in the year, so certainly uh, decreasing the probability of further rates, further rate cuts beyond the one expected next week. Uh, what are your thoughts on the U.S. GDP figures and uh, you know the whole rate cut issue?
2: So just to touch on a couple points that you made, you had mentioned the drawdown in business inventories that actually accounted for 0.85 percent, subtracted about 0.85 percent from the overall GDP numbers. So without that, you'd be you know getting in the range of 3 percent growth. and that's kind of a transitory issue it's likely to reverse in the next quarter the other aspect is it's interesting that Trump made those comments as you could argue that his the impact of him with the trade wars has had a way larger impact than the Fed As over the last quarter, exports actually fell 5.2% while imports grew slightly, which is just expanding the trade deficit that that Trump always complains about with the U.S., which is really just a direct causation of his trade wars. The other aspect is that consumer spending, you had mentioned that it was up, it was actually up 4.3% in Q2 versus 1.1% in Q1. And we are going to be talking a little bit about some of the large tech companies but that is being seen in the Q2 results from some of these consumer-facing tech companies where there is con- strong consumer demand. And just as a reminder, consumer consumer spending does make up about two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So that is a re- has a really big impact on GDP numbers.
1: One thing that I wanted to talk about here is the Fed's dual mandate, the Federal Reserve's um, dual mandate. One is uh, maximum employment. And you look at the figures there and, and U.S. unemployment rate really near all-time lows. So, you know, check the box on uh, satisfying um, that portion of the requirement. It's hard to argue um, that they're not at full employment. Um, They're not seeing it through the inflation numbers, which they typically would see um, with full employment. You typically tend to see higher wage growth than is happening. But, I mean, the unemployment figure kind of proves that um, there's a uh, a lot of people in jobs right now and really no issue with unemployment. And then the second really is uh, stable pricing. And they talk, talk about stable prices with respect to uh, CPI or consumer price index. Inflation, they, tar- they generally target 2%. Uh, inflation has been near there, but not quite. But it really makes you wonder, are rate cuts justified here? I mean, the the S&P 500, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, all at or near all-time highs. Markets have been doing very excellent, but they're framing this rate cut as a quote, insurance cut. Basically, they're trying to counteract any economic weakness that is largely coming uh, internationally. So we talked about, you know, adequate U.S. GDP growth numbers. It's not quite uh, the north of 3% that Donald Trump wants or, you know, the 3.1% that they experienced in Q1. However, you know, it is a pretty good number, 2.1%, they can't complain. And they're really going to enact these cuts to counteract two main things. I mean, there's a lot of weakness in Europe. Um, Part of that is just, you know, the economy has been sluggish for a long time. The ECB is gonna cut rates, which we're gonna get into today. Not just that, but with Boris Johnson now uh, taking Taking leadership um, in the U.K., it looks like Brexit is going to go ahead. And then number two, uh, on the China front, there's some economic weakness there, numbers coming in below expectations. The trade war is really uh, weighing on the Chinese economy. Not just that, but uh, other economies. Back to Europe, we're seeing uh, some weak numbers out of, um, you know, the really, the driver behind the EU economy being Germany. Germany's coming out with some pretty weak economic figures there. So the Federal Reserve, really framing this upcoming rate cut, which is gonna happen. I think it's likely gonna be 25 basis points, but I'm sure we'll be talking about this next week. Really framing this as more of an insurance cut And so it's not necessarily another entire cutting cycle. Who knows, could be one and done. Things could get worse, but they're really uh, pretending to be data-driven here and data more so, um, you know, who knows how much of that has to do with Donald Trump really demanding rate cuts. But uh, yeah, we'll report more on this as we see what they choose to do next week. Sticking to global macro, but moving across a pond to the uh, Eurozone. Now, the ECB President Mario Draghi signaled that they're preparing to cut interest rates for the first time uh, since 2016 while also indicating the potential restart of its bond-buying program. Now, the ECB uh, this week opted to keep their interest rate on hold with the main refinancing rate remaining at zero and the deposit rate at 0.4%. So it is already negative, but they're likely to make it even more negative in the future, hinting at future uh, additional rate cuts. In a move that paved the way for rate cuts in the next coming months, the Gover- Governing Council changed its forward guidance to say that it expects rates to remain quote, at their present or lower levels, at least through the first half of this year or 2020, Uh, sorry, for the first half of 2020. Now, these stimulus measures aim to reinvigorate the struggling Eurozone economy, which, you know, we talk about that U.S. GDP figure of 2.1 percent. I mean, the Eurozone, they're not even really close to that. They're kind of more in the 1 percent range and inflation is coming in well below uh, 2 percent. It said, it was expecting to keep its key interest rate at minus 0.4% or lower uh, for the next foreseeable future. We'll kind of see where they're heading. Uh, the EECB's next policy meeting is on September twelfth, in which they will likely enact uh, this rate cut and potential uh, additional monetary stimulus measures. So it's now increasingly looking like this September meeting will bring uh, not just one, but rather a package of several uh, monetary uh, stimulus actions. But that is to be seen. Nonetheless, it really raises the questions about how much more the ECB can accomplish with its current toolkit. I mean, their key interest rate is already below zero, it's negative, and their balance sheet has swollen to around 40% of Eurozone economic output. Now, this is double the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and as we previously discussed last year the Federal Reserve was actually trying to shrink its balance sheet but now the ECB looking to grow it and in my opinion you know it could be really pushing on a string here how much is this action gonna actually affect uh, the EU economy people talking about look negative interest rates aren't helping the banks are really struggling just look at the share prices of Deutsche Bank and and many of the other uh, European lenders, some of them hitting the share prices they haven't seen in decades. So the financials really struggling there and kind of financials drive lending, which drive many other portions of the economy. Nonetheless, some market action, um, 10-year German government bonds hitting record low yields of nearly minus half a percent. The eurozone currency, the euro fell to almost its lowest level in more than two years. And then, you know, the net result Globally, we now have nearly 14 trillion in negative Yielding debt, much of which is uh, that of the European kind. What are your thoughts on really what's happening in um, the eurozone and what the ECB is signaling that they're going to do?
2: Yeah, so it's looking like they're they're going to enact a rate cut of around ten, like likely ten basis points. That's what's at least being priced in by investors. But then you'd mention the bond buying program, the quantitative easing, and so. For for our listeners, they did stop their former QE uh, back in December of 2018, and that was a 2.6 trillion euro bond buying program. Um, And they had stopped that amid some signs that the region was recovering. And now if they do enact this again, the really crazy thing about this is that they'll have to alter some of their, they are self-imposed rules, but they will have to alter them that will allow them to own more than 33% of any individual government's debt. So when you talk about the Fed unwinding some of their balance sheet, this creates a real problem for in the future when they are wanting to unwind some of these positions where they hold you know upwards of thirty percent of a country's debt, I mean that's going to that you'd think that would take a very long time to to get off their balance sheet if ever
1: yeah, not just that, but you look at what's happening in the market, we're seeing you know record bond prices um, as shown by their negative yields, and you think about it, well who's Crazy enough to uh, buy a negative-yielding bond, where it guarantees a loss in principle. Well, you think that you know the ECB is coming in buying up all the bonds. You look from a supply and demand uh, perspective; they're really increasing demand, and you know everyone else is forced to get really poor prices. What happens when uh, all of that reverses? And what what is kind of confusing to some market participants is, you know, they're increasing their bond buying, but You know, many yields are already negative, as we indicated. You know, everything from Germany to Portugal to France, they all have negative yielding bonds now. Um, Is getting more negative going to help, right? Um, So I think that uh, potentially all this market manipulation, it's really just not having the desired effect of increasing inflation and and increasing economic growth, just because things are so warped It's really hard to have things function normally when, um, you know, it's really bizarre when you have all these negative yields. It really distorts the capital markets, really distorts the capital allocation process, really distorts, you know, the lending process of banks looking to lend to businesses that uh, ultimately that's the productivity growth that drives economic growth and uh, you know that whole process has really been uh, broken by central bank actions in my opinion here so it's really interesting there's clear evidence that what they have been doing hasn't been working so they're now just going to keep pursuing that and it's really quite the head scratcher in my opinion lastly we just wanted to touch on uh, some uh, regulatory actions from the department of justice what they did this week they announced a broad investigating into what they call leading online platforms to see if they have been engaging in quote practices that have reduced competition stifled innovation or otherwise harmed consumers the regulator didn't name which companies they're investigating but it's pretty much known that they're looking into amazon facebook and google parent alphabet now the doj said in a statement that it would look into quote widespread concern expressed about search social media and some retail services online so that's really foreshadowing look you know it's amazon facebook and google that we're really going to focus on here Uh, another an uh, interesting quote from you know a different part of the government It's actually from U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, had some uh, choice words from Amazon. He stated that, I think if you look at Amazon, although there are certainly benefits to it, they've destroyed the retail industry across the United States, so there's no question they've limited competition. So interesting quote from U.S. Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Now this DOJ move comes after the outgoing European Commission signaled it was also looking to become more aggressive in checking the market power of the largest online platform companies. Another interesting thing that happened uh, from the regulatory side just this week now this DOJ announcement of an investigation came actually one day before the FTC announced a record five billion dollar fine against Facebook now what they're going after Facebook for is really you know mishandling of data and all these privacy breaches of uh, the people you know their customers people who uh, users of Facebook's giant online platform got a statement from Facebook here they stated that the agreement that they signed will will require a fundamental shift in the way we approach our work and it will place additional responsibility on people building our products at every level of the company it will mark a sharper turn toward privacy on a different scale than anything we've done in the past but i mean you know you gotta really take these actions by facebook with a grain of salt they're just so tremendously profitable and the reason they are profitable is because you know they really don't give a damn about anyone's privacy. They're really harvesting everyone's data, selling it for top dollar. And, you know, when you look at the results, their quarterly results, Q2 results, which came out this week, $16.9 billion in quarterly revenue, which is mind-blowing, up 28% from a year ago. So they're enormous, of tremendous market power and still growing like a startup, growing like crazy, 28% year-on-year revenue growth. They also posted $2.6 billion in profit. Now this reflected a $2 billion charge as part of its $5 billion settlement with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and Facebook stock up 60% year-to-date, so the market is liking what they're doing, irrespective of this massive regulatory clampdown, the regulatory Coming after them more often uh, with the DOJ announcing this new big investigation, not just into what we see as Facebook, but also Amazon, Google, you know, Amazon dominates search, Facebook dominates social media, Google or Amazon dominates retail, Google dominates search. You know, really cracking down on the dominance of these massive online platforms. What are your thoughts on the regulatory action here and just you know the continued just wild wildly profitable results of these dominant tech companies
2: yeah first with regards to facebook is although they did have this large settlement it really doesn't change anything with regards to how they what they're able to capture for data or their advertising model so in terms of their ongoing profitability that won't really change i just see a lot of lip service coming from facebook Um, saying that they've been slapped on the wrist and that they've learned their lesson, but there really isn't too much to change anything moving forward. Another aspect that I found interesting was just the interaction between the DOJ and FTC, or lack of interaction. You know, this is really, you know, the DOJ now going after where there's some debate over what purview, what regulatory purview these tech companies come under, whether it be the DOJ or FTC, and then as well, you know, like this is a reactionary move, really, by the U.S. by the DOJ uh, after the European Commission said in April that they were going to lower the bar for companies deemed dominant players and subject them to stricter antitrust rules. Where Trump came in and said that the U.S. should be handling this, not Europe. And then finally, the one last thing I'd like to point out is that of those names mentioned from the tech companies, so Facebook, Google, Amazon, and I did hear Apple being mentioned as well, but really just the main three is that Microsoft is noticeably left off this list. And so if you would have asked somebody you know, in five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, if there was going to be antitrust you know, concerns with any of the tech companies, you would have said Microsoft, as some of our listeners will remember back in the 90s, you know, Microsoft had one of the most famous antitrust cases, you know, in history. And so, uh, the, the fact that they aren't being, you know, have no concerns in this is quite interesting, and quite a shift. Certainly, and
1: on the Facebook front, as you indicated, they—you know—it probably is lip service, and their attitude has always been to move fast and break things. And as we previously discussed, this whole Libra cryptocurrency—I mean, you know—that's kind of a face moment. They're act, just really just asking for more regulatory scrutiny, and and it really just shows how much they care about authorities, which is very little in my opinion, Um, you know, they're they're continuing to operate as they like, they're tremendously profitable, tremendously powerful, and you got a question, you know, is there some regulatory capture here just because these big tech companies spend so much uh, on lobbying the government, um, you know, and they have such control of their market, they're so entrenched, um, you know, is there any stopping them at this point? I guess we'll see, but uh, you know, I don't think this DOJ investigation will amount to all that much, as you indicated. They previously went after Microsoft 20 years ago. Uh, now you look at Microsoft, trillion-dollar company, uh, as dominant as ever, um, but clearly facing new competitors by the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple. They're all going after each other's turf, but you know, in terms of other startups to compete against them, you know, good luck. They typically just crush their competitors or just copy them right and that's it for episode 24 of the absolute return podcast if you enjoyed it as always you can check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com we will be back next week with a new episode so look out for it then in the meantime check out our older episodes leave us a review if you'd like we'll chat with you next week cheers <laughs>
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.